Well, it's a blessing to be with all you all this morning. It's great to be up here in the deep north, as we call it, from Boston's perspective. Um, and I, I love being here. I love uh, being in this community. Uh, as as uh, John Paul was sharing, I work with grad students at Harvard, and we were recently joined in our in our work and our team by. Uh, someone who um, a number of you would know, uh, David Hickendorn, who's joined our team um, and working with us with international students there. So um, we have deep connections to this community here. But I'm here this morning to talk about uh, Nehemiah 9 and what's happening there. And the first thing to note is that we live in a fast world and coronavirus has slowed us down a bit, but with differing levels of caution, people are pretty keen to get back to the ever accelerating pace of life that we're used to. And this push to always be getting faster and faster and to move quicker and quicker means that there's very little pushing us to stop and reflect and notice what God is doing. And this is to our detriment, and we suffer because of this, because if we only are looking in the present and moving as quickly as possible, we only get a very thin slither of reality by which to understand truth. We know as much as what's going on as Sarah knew what was going on in that mystery box. Our judgment is impaired. We lack perspective. And when we come to Nehemiah 9, we see that this is one of a number of chapters in the Bible where the people stop, stop what they're doing, and remember what has gone before. Recall their history, interpreting it with the Spirit of God. So the question we're asking today is, what does reflecting on our past reveal about God and His character? And what does it reveal about us and our character? And God willing, as we look at Nehemiah 9, we'll learn the importance of stopping to reflect, to interpret what has gone before so that we don't deceive ourselves. Because our ability to deceive ourselves is, is kind of amazing. Now, I, I work primarily with law students, so I'll pick on them. They're not here, so they're easy to pick on. There's a strong narrative in law school that you are busy, you are overwhelmed, uh, and it's, it's true for, for many of them. It's not actually true for all of them, but nevertheless, the narrative is secure. You are busy. And in the midst of busyness, you start building up a list of all the amazing things you would do if you just had a little bit more time, a little bit more space, a little bit more capacity. I'll exercise more, I'll devote more time to scripture and prayer, I'll be a better friend to my old friends and, and to the people who are around me now, I'll learn to cook, I'll start volunteering, I'll get more involved in community, I'll start writing for fun, I'll sit on my porch drinking tea, thinking deep and satisfying thoughts, I'll figure out what I want to do with my life if I just had more time, more space, more capacity. Well, be careful what you wish for, because, of course, in the middle of last semester, campus got shut down and all these students were sent home to do online classes. And for most of these students, they suddenly had a lot more time, a lot more space, a lot more capacity. And I know that uh, coronavirus hasn't hit everyone the same way. My pages are out of order. Uh, coronavirus hasn't hit everyone the same way. And so it's not that everyone got more time when the coronavirus hit. 
You know, if you had kids in school who suddenly got sent home from school, then it wasn't really the time for you to perfect your sourdough pre-fermentation process. But for many of these law students, they got to do a social experiment on themselves. How did their visions of what they would do with more time square with their practice reality, with what they actually did when they had more time? And it might not surprise you to hear that there was a gap, a gap between their hopes and their realities. Results varied. Some were able to implement some of the things that they, uh, that, that they had hoped. Some lost even the few healthy habits they had when they were busier, such as waking up before noon. And all found it more difficult than they expected to live the life they thought they would if they just had more time. Because when the theoretical constructions of their minds were placed into the crucible of reality, an observation bubbled up. The barrier to them living their best life, to flourishing the way they'd always hoped, wasn't actually time. It wasn't some external restraint that was holding them back. It was actually something in them, in their own willpower, their own ability to control their life the way they thought they would. And it was an important realization to make, and one you would only notice if you observed reality as it had happened, rather than just lived on what you thought to be true based on your, your present moment. Now, I'm picking on these poor law students, but of course this isn't just about them, and I'm about to pull the old Romans 2 switcheroo on all y'all, because when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. This is about all of us. This is about me. This is a human phenomenon. We have theoretical ideas about how things are, how we are, what makes us tick, what's holding us back, why we're not thriving at the level we'd like, but usually... When truly passed through the litmus test of reality, they fall flat to lesser or greater degrees, particularly when it comes to judging our own hearts and our own character. So what can we learn from Nehemiah 9? Nehemiah 9, uh, well, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, which you guys have been walking through, so hopefully I'm not repeating too much, is of course set after the exile. And the exile is an extremely important interpretive moment in the history of Israel. Before the exile, some had come to the belief that Israel was untouchable. We are God's people. God cannot be defeated. God is on our side. We cannot be defeated. We are saved by our very heritage as descendants of Abraham. But the truth was this. Israel had transgressed the covenant God had made with them, and they would suffer the just consequences from a just God for their sin and failure to keep the covenant. And so when Jerusalem fell and its people were being carted off to Babylon, false prophets stepped up and said, you'd be swiftly coming home. This was not a real defeat. Because they couldn't reconcile in their minds the idea of God still being good while Israel lay defeated. But they weren't seeing rightly. In stark contrast, Jeremiah proclaimed that Israel was in exile because God was good. Not despite of it. 
He was God of Babylon too and used Babylon as an instrument of his justice, being a just God. It would be 70 years of exile, a lifetime. But yes, God's mercy, as is his character, would ultimately prevail. Even though God had not kept his side, God, even though Israel had not kept their side of the covenant, God would keep his side of the covenant. God would be faithful. And so when the latest empire, Persia, took over, they sent God's people, Israel, back to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's at this moment in the book of Nehemiah that it was essential that they understood their history correctly. And they knew what it revealed about God and his character. And they knew what it revealed about themselves and their character. And it's interesting because we didn't read the whole chapter today, but the story starts with with God and creation and moves through the, the calling of Abraham and the exodus and the giving of the law and entering the promised land and through Israel's history. And throughout, the pattern is clear. God is faithful. God is merciful. God never fails to restore his people. But we were repeatedly stiff-necked, presumptuous, stubborn, disobedient. And the text really hones in on the cycle of, of God blessing Israel. God's people falling away in, in disobedience and them falling under their enemies and God mercifully restoring them and the cycle continuing. But what I find is particularly interesting is the text starts out pretty specific, talking about Abraham and Moses and, and creation. But as the telling of the story amplifies, it loses its specificity. I'm going to read a slightly abbreviated version of our, our reading again, and I want you to listen for any names, dates, and places. They, our forefathers, were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies. They cried out to you, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. But after they had rest, they did evil again, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them, and you warned them to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey obey your commandments. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the land, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's no events named. There's no names named. There's no places named. This is honing in on the cycle rather than the specifics, because it's not really about the particulars of the past. It's about the pattern, the pattern that continues to this day. A pattern of our behavior and character and a pattern of God's behavior and character. This is the text way of asserting that this is not about the past. This is the past revealing the present. This is what is at stake here and now. This is what we must actively respond to today. And the people realized that every time that they had declared independence from God, They had suffered for it. It had been to their demise. And so they responded in this moment at the end of Nehemiah 9 by reasserting their dependence on God, who was always faithful, by reaffirming the covenant. As it said, those 
who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If the pattern is not good, you have to notice it in order to break it. We need to stop and deliberately take time to reflect on the reality, the truth of the past, to counteract our constant delusion that somehow our future will be different, better, without anything changing. I have a little joke that past Pete is a slacker who should have used his time better and has left far too much for me to do, and he's the worst. But future Pete, fortunately, is entirely diligent, competent, and more than capable of managing anything that I leave for him to do. I'm very thankful for future Pete. Whatever the case, present Pete deserves a break. The delusion at the core of this is that with no intentionality, without anything changing, I'll magically be more responsible in the future than I was in the past or am in the present. You know, things will be different. And delusions like this, I think, are pretty broadly distributed among humans. An overestimation of our own character without a basis in observable reality. And I think it affects us when we're not really paying attention. For me, one example of this is a temptation I have to think that my life would be better without God. That if I wasn't weighed down by the restraints of my faith and through my natural brilliance or something, I would soar like an eagle. If I didn't have to think about the big picture things of God, I'd be free not to think about that and pursue what I want, having no problems. If I didn't feel compelled to be committed to Christian community, to love the unlovable, if I didn't have to care whether people knew God, if I could define my own sense of right determined by what felt right to me, then if I didn't have all these obligations, then then I would be truly free. And being free, I would make of myself, of course, an amazing life. It is, of course, the ancient lie of the serpent. The idea that I am more dependable than God. Declare independence from God and flourish on the strength of your own back. And so long as I'm not paying attention, and don't test it against actual reality, I can be tempted by this thinking. But as soon as I actually stop and consider how I actually act when I don't have any restraints, when I don't have any exterior sources of purpose, when I have no sense of duty, then my delusion falls apart pretty rapidly. I like to think that without obligation or restraint, future Pete would, of course, pursue amazingly meaningful ventures and be at peace with whatever level of success he has. Never mind the fact that past Pete, whenever he's he's been able to break the shackles of responsibility, he mostly just watched funny animal videos on the internet and re-watched The Office again and felt kind of sad. I mean, of course, past Pete did that. We've already established he's kind of a slacker. You know, when I stop to reflect, it becomes obvious how much I would flounder without the life God has called me to. But I've got to stop and reflect. And when I don't do this, not only do I create a false vision of myself, but I forget all the things that God has done in my life. God has shown up in profound ways in my life. 
and the family that he's given me and the pathway he's led me towards my current vocation, financially providing for health matters and my family. Pretty much everything I value in my life is intimately connected to my faith. But it's amazing how absent all that is from my mind when the delusion sets in. I get forgetful. I get disconnected from the reality of God's goodness. We can be amazingly forgetful of what God has done. Uh, I've watched as friends have amazingly powerful experiences of God. Miracle healings. Just intense experiences of God's very presence. Only to drift away from the faith. Now, and I think this is at the heart of why Jesus was always resistant to give people signs when they were demanding it. Because we like to think that something powerful like that would change everything and change our heart and change the character, our character. But Jesus knew that these dramatic events have their place, but are not ultimately responsible for changing the human heart. This is why he said, even if someone came back from the dead, still they will not believe. And I notice in these friends that it's not that they deny the healing particularly or deny the experience that they had. It's just that they think about it less and less as they determine how they want to live their lives. In the desert, Israel forgot the mighty deeds God had done in Egypt. Sometimes I wonder how many times God has answered my prayers and I don't even notice because I forgot that I prayed for that thing. Without reflection, we do not give God his due for the mercy and grace that he's shown us. You might have had the thought, I wish God would just turn up right in front of me and just tell me what to do. But then you stop and think, Israel had exactly that. God turned up right in front of them and told them exactly what to do. And they did not do it. And we like to think, oh, I'd be different. I would do it. It would be so easy if God was just right there. And I don't think that's true. That's one of those delusions that we have. If we reflect on our reality, we see that God has turned up in powerful ways and has shown us what to do. But we have been unable to do it by ourselves. We naturally inflate our own character and deflate God's character. We need to stop and reflect what has gone before, reflect on reality, not our delusion, and interpret it with the Spirit. Test our instincts against the crucible of reality and cut down our bloated estimations of ourselves and magnify our anemic estimations of God. And when we do this, we uncover the gospel, the good news that sets us free. This is what happens for the people in Nehemiah 9. Because it would have been so easy having rebuilt Jerusalem to go back to a sense of security that was based on these strong walls, these things that they had built up, being dependent on their own supposed greatness, with maybe God in the background passively blessing their greatness. But whenever we're finding ourselves to, to be, depend on our own strength, we have found the untruth, the anti-gospel, the bad news, which deceives us by telling us that we've got it all sorted without God. And it comes with the veneer of something we want to hear 
It's attractive to us. You've got it sorted. You're great. You're self-sufficient. You don't need anything but you. But in practice, it destroys us. We end up weighed down by the weight of justifying our own existence and we leave a trail of brokenness on ourselves and on others whenever we try to justify ourselves on the strength of our own back. It sounds good to our ears, but when we reflect on the implications of it in actual practice reality, it exposes the lie. And so Israel and Nehemiah 9 realized that every time they had depended on their own strength that had been to their ruin and knew in that moment they had to devote themselves once again to God, putting their dependence on Him and committing to the covenant again. They may not have had the fullness of the gospel in Nehemiah's time because Jesus had not yet come, but the character of God was the same. The strands of the gospel which would come together in Jesus Christ were there. We are trapped in our brokenness. And God, being a just God, cannot ignore sin, but due to God's generous character, His mercy and grace always have the final word. And he is inviting you now, regardless of your past failings, to turn from sin, repent, devote yourself to God and be dependent on him and find life with his life running through your veins. When we stop and see reality for what it is, we find good news. It's kind of like someone walking around realizing that there's something deeply wrong inside their body with their health. And you might be able to find a multitude of voices telling you that, oh, it's fine, it's probably nothing, don't worry about it. And that might sound like what you want to hear, oh, you're fine. But it doesn't satisfy what you really feel is going on, and actually following that advice might destroy you. What that person really needs is the qualified specialist with an accurate diagnosis that actually speaks to the reality of their unease, and with it, a comprehensive known cure. When you get that, you get good news. When we refuse to reflect, we end up satisfying ourselves with a multitude of voices, in, internal and external, which put a superficial layer of smoothness over our reality. But when we stop, reflect, and see rightly, we're better equipped to hear the voice of the one qualified specialist, the one true physician of our souls. And thanks be to God, he gives us an accurate, satisfying diagnosis that speaks to the reality of our unease. And thank God he gives us a known, comprehensive cure. That there is where we find good news. If we cannot stop to see reality for what it is, we cannot see the gospel for what it is because we're not seeing rightly. So how should we reflect? How should we approach this? And I honestly think that the ways to approach this are relatively straightforward and relatively well-known. I don't think this requires so much imagination as it requires implementation. Get a journal, use it. Set up regular times to stop and reflect. Keep those times, protect them, defend them, decide a structure. Pick questions that you want to ask yourself regularly. Use others, get them to ask you those questions. Get a spiritual director, get in a a triad, a group of three who get together regularly to, to assess what is God doing. 
make choices about your life which are responsive to the reality you've reflected on rather than on the impulses of the delusions of a mind stuck in the present tense. But I do want to throw one practical suggestion into the mix because I think it's often missed. Monthly quiet days, or at least a few hours if a day is, whole day is too intimidating. Because it's, it's important to reflect daily and, and weekly, and, and, and I do that and strive to do that. But I don't think we have the capacity to really reflect on the level that we, we really need to be doing on, on a daily basis. And having an annual time to reflect like a spiritual retreat is great too. But by itself, it's insufficient because we end up trying to solve our entire life in one big go and a big like annual moment of, and we'll set these plans like, oh, I'm going to live this way from now on, or I'm going to do these things for the next entire year. And we end up feeling guilty because we're not able to keep the focus and attention for the whole year based on one big moment of reflection. New Year's resolutions tend to last about a month. Monthly is a good rhythm I've found in my life. If you prioritize it, you can take extended time once a month to reflect properly and commit to new habits and responses as an experiment for the next month. In my life, I've found this to be a much more grace-filled experience. You're more likely to keep it, keep focus on it for a month. And even if you fail at it, you experience less guilt and more grace because you know that you're just able to come back to it in just another week or two. So I've found that having a monthly rhythm of reflection has been a really good cycle. But regardless of how we do it, we need to stop and reflect on what God has done and who we have been so we can counteract our constant propensity to delude ourselves. Choosing instead to see reality and truth for what it is and live in a way that makes sense of the reality, not of our whims. When we do this, we find good news. A clear and accurate diagnosis for our basic unease alongside God's all-encompassing cure. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good and you have turned up in so many ways in history and the lives of those who came before us and in our lives now. Help us to remember what you have done in our lives so that we will not be deluded and help us to see ourselves rightly so that we are not tempted to depend on our own selves when history shows ourselves not to be dependable, but rather that we would put our dependence in you, seeing that you are dependable and we are not. Lord, help us to be a reflective people. In Jesus' name.